All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is Jay Aaron Simmons. Aaron, how's it going, man? Hey, I'm doing well. It's great to be with you and uh, glad to talk to your audience today. Yeah, thanks for, for coming on and hanging out. I uh, I recently heard you on a podcast that I like a lot. A buddy of mine, uh, Dan Koch, his podcast, You Have Permission, Um I heard the episode that you did and then I was like, oh man, now, so we, we have some like overlapping listeners. So yeah. like, great. Now the, you have permission people when they come and listen to this, you're gonna be like, oh, Josh just copied Dan, um, <laughs> which I have done in the past, but this time I didn't. And so I, I wanted to send an angry text to Dan, like, damn it, you beat me to it. But well, we, we will call that, we can call that the opening act. Uh, it's like, I, ah, I, tell, look at that. I tell my students that, uh, you know, whenever they're going on last, that they're always Slayer because Slayer opens for no one. Right. right so on. we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> this will be the Slayer uh, episode uh, for Dan's opening. Fantastic. All right. Well, just so for people who aren't the same people and didn't listen to that episode, can you just fill in our listeners just a little bit of, about who you are, you know, what do you do, things like that? Yeah, no, happy to. So I'm actually a professor of philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. And my area of specialization, the kind of work I do and the books I write, focus mainly on, I'll say it technically and then make it intelligible. So technically, I work on existentialism and phenomenology and ask questions of political theory and philosophy of religion. So uh, how, how does that actually make sense? Well, I think a lot about what remains possible for faith, what remains possible for religious identity, uh, belief, practice after something like postmodernism. So, you know, who is it that we are as Christians or some other determinate religious tradition? Who is it that we are as religious in light of this sort of weird space that is defined by the death of God? And so I think about those questions, those issues, and then try to kind of navigate them in relation to deliberative democracy. So how do we do this while also living well in a social context that often says we should bracket faith or stop talking about religion? 
So I try to think about, you know, religion and politics, the two things that you don't want to talk about, you know, with your crazy uncle at uh, Thanksgiving, right? Like that's what I do for a living. Nice. That sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Except when you're at Thanksgiving, right? Right. It's great all the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. Thanksgiving, you're with your friends. There's uh, my friends often make fun of me. We'll be, you know, sitting around a bonfire, you know, having a few beers or something. And then somebody will say something about uh, theology and it'll like set me off. And they'll be like, Mm -hmm. ah, guys, like, you know better than to say yeah. this kind of crap just, around Josh. Don't do it. it. <laughs> see, I right. and see, I'm that way uh, when it comes to like Florida State football um, or trout fishing. So yeah, like the philosophy, I can actually leave aside when I'm at a campfire. But you know, if you want to talk smack about Florida State, I'm in. Right <laughs> there, you go. Well, that that actually leads nicely into a question that I like to ask uh, guests who come on the show. It's a silly question. Um, but I think it, it can show some personality sometimes. Uh, and that question would be, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Or what is your favorite ice hockey team? I've never figured <laughs> out how to actually ask that properly. What, what, what the direct object is. Yeah. So uh, you, you and I were talking before we went live. And I, I love ice hockey, but I'm so bad at it that I don't count as a fan. Is probably the best way to put it. Like I, I wish I knew more uh, to be a fan. I feel the same way, by the way, about uh, soccer. It's like, man, that looks like such a cool game. I wish I understood it. Um, but my my favorite team. It's actually a boring answer, I'm sure. But I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and so uh, I was there. You know, when the Lightning really kind of got going, and obviously they've been doing really well uh, for a while. So I'd say probably the Lightning. Um, I, I have gone, however, I should give a shout out uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina, we have a team called the swamp rabbits. It's a, a, you know, kind of minor league team or whatever. So, uh, my, my son and I have gone to the swamp rabbit, uh, hockey matches here. And it's awesome. Cause there's like, you know, very few people that show up so you can get right down against the glass and, you know, it, it's really a, a ball watching. So nice. Yeah. Ice, ice hockey is a fun sport. And I feel like most people, if they see it in person, like really love it or they're like, yeah. you know, get sucked into it somehow. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, ice hockey is my favorite sport. I'm a huge Washington Capitals fan. OK, um, as listeners will know. Well, uh, I mean, if, if you can't be a Florida State Seminoles football fan, then I guess you can slum it as a Washington Capitals fan. Just like just abandon the sport. That's fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because I, I have zero context for college football. Okay. Like. If you say go Seminoles, then all right, works for me. (laughs) Well, I I actually went to Florida State for a master's degree just so I could be a football fan, right? So I thought, well, I can't really be a fan unless I'm an alumni. So I went down, got a degree, and just watched football for several years. And I was actually at a football game with my buddy, my roommate at the time, both of us doing our PhDs. And, you know, we're probably shirtless and like passing other students above our heads or something right in the student section. And we're chanting along with everybody. And he looks over at me. He's like, dude, don't you hear what we're saying? And, and of course, it's one of the things where like, it's obvious you're not even paying attention. And I started listening. I was like, oh, my goodness. We were chanting as we beat up on like Duke or Virginia or something. It was like, you know, go back to the libraries. And he's like, dude, we're PhD students. Maybe we should go to a school known for libraries. So I actually uh, transferred up to Vanderbilt, though Florida State has an amazing philosophy and humanities program, uh, did transfer up to Vanderbilt and do my PhD at Vandy. And I never went and saw a game there at Vanderbilt. So that's hilarious. (laughs) Nice. Sweet. Cool. I have uh, a more serious question, I guess. And then we'll kind of jump into uh, 
why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, but the podcast yeah, is called Rethinking Faith. Um, although I become more and more uh, distressed with the current name of my podcast. Why is uh, that? Because I, I don't I think I'd rather say Rethinking Belief. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think I mean, it'll tie in nicely if when we talk later, but um, I want to make a distinction between faith and belief. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like faith is more uh, existential, um, experiential, mm-hmm. um, whereas belief is more so the like, here's the things that you have to say or believe. And yep. when we, when I first started this podcast, it was more about that, like mm. rethinking the ideas. Um, whereas gotcha. faith as something existential or, or experiential, I guess we can question our experiences. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but also it's, it's harder to rethink those things. So it's a technical, yeah. it's a technicality that I well, don't hey, like, I, but it works. It's, <laughs> I, I, I'm excited to dig into that with you. Um, I've written actually a lot about that very distinction and, and have engaged some, uh, yeah, big name philosophers of religion who have taken me to task on that distinction in the way that I cash it out. And so that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll have to, I'm making a note of that. I already had like a one note, but now I'm starring it. Boom. All right. <laughs> but here, here's the question I wanted to ask. Uh, with all of that aside, um, what do you feel is perhaps the most important aspect of your faith that you had to rethink? Interesting. So had to rethink, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you mean had to rethink just in general, like as, as a 44 year old person who has lived 44 years, what's the thing that stands out? Or do you mean like specifically in relation to my work as a philosopher? Cause I, cause I actually think the answer is different. Oh, interesting. Well, how about give me both? Cause I'm interested in your distinction. Yeah. So, um, as a philosopher, um, the most important aspect of my faith that I've had to rethink would probably be how we make sense of the priority that we give to the predicates for God. So again, what what that means, a sort of technical way of saying, we tend to think about God primarily in terms of being, right? And this is a very classical conception and classical theism where God is the necessary being who then has a list of predicates, all powerful, all knowing, all good, et cetera. And this is what underwrites the vast majority of what I would describe as popular apologetics, uh, which I'm very, very critical of uh, for what it's worth. I'm, I'm less critical of like technical, you know, pro shop talk apologetics, but most people aren't reading that, <laughs> you know, but the, the kind of, you know, Barnes and Noble in cap sort of apologetics, it starts with like, so is there this existing being called God? And then they try to give these arguments for why the answer has to be yes and why the yes answer is then the ground for everything else we do, right? Well, it was actually reading uh, Martin Heidegger, who is a German philosopher, has a, a very checkered past, uh, was associated with National Socialism for a while, the complicated um, man. But he had a really interesting idea that he called the critique of ontotheology. And that's just a fancy way of saying he's critical of the idea of thinking about God in terms of being, in terms of existence. Now, of course, what we might say then, right, is, oh, so you mean God doesn't exist? And the answer is not 
well, no, it, it got, it's not that God doesn't exist. It's just why is existence the most important fact about God? And the way I sometimes teach this um, to my students when I'm getting them just to you know, start thinking about what this could mean. <laughs> so I say, well, I've been married to my wife, Vanessa, for 20 years. And when somebody says, what's the most important thing about Vanessa? You know, what, what, what really has kept you together for 20 years? And I was like, well, she exists. <laughs> it's like, well, no, like that, that clearly is not the most significant thing about her. Now, it's, it's certainly, you might say, a prerequisite. It's something that matters. You know, loving her if she didn't exist would be a strange thing. But I want to talk about the most significant thing about her is her love right? It is my love for her. It's the fact that we are united in love. And then our existence is in some ways, the result of that love, right? How we live is a product of the fact that we love each other in some real significant way. And that I think is true about God as well. Um, what if, and this is following a philosopher named Jean-Luc Marion, and I think he's right. What if we stopped thinking about God in terms of existence as that's the game, right? And instead started thinking about God in terms of love or charity or justice. And if we thought of God that way, again, it's not that God doesn't exist. It's just that we now don't spend all of our time wrestling with does God exist? We instead wrestle with what would it mean to live in light of a loving God or a God as the minor prophets discuss, a God who is so on the side of the poor, the marginal, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, that it wrecks our sense of complacency in our like self-sufficient white world. That like, now, hmm, now white supremacy and patriarchy and misogyny and homophobia, like these things get wrecked at the foundation of who God presents God's self as being rather than, well, since God is a necessary being who, we instead say, well, no, because God loves, God is. So that would be a, a philosophical rethinking that has actually reanimated my faith. It's reanimated my lived reality. Uh, and it's connected me, I think, more essentially to what I would describe as the sort of prophetic tradition that sometimes gets overlooked or underappreciated, especially within white evangelicalism in America. So, so that'd be my, my philosophical answer. Uh, the political, excuse me, the, the uh, personal answer is a political response and it actually flows out of the former. So what's the most important thing I've had to rethink just being a 44-year-old thinking about faith in light of what I do? It's, huh, and this is a Kierkegaardian point, or a Bonhoefferian point, depending on who, who your audience is reading, maybe what it looks like to be a Christian means we have to be vocally critical of Christendom. Maybe we've got to stand in some ways against the church in order to be the church. And that fact has never been more prominently displayed to me than in the last four years. Um, and I think it's really sad that we find ourselves now in a situation where, you know, being a white evangelical in America is almost necessarily predictive. Um, there are exceptions, but it almost necessarily predicts that you're more likely to believe in QAnon conspiracy theories. You're more likely to be anti-vax. You're more likely to think that immigration is not actually a moral issue anymore, right? I, 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 that's really out of sync with the God of love and justice that I had rethought in light of philosophy. So 
Maybe those are kind of two things they pair together, but I think the motivation for them, one was philosophical and the other was very much a political lived sort of reality. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I think both of those things are huge. And I think to the, the philosophical aspect or element that you were talking about is probably something that I more recently stumbled upon um, that has been very helpful for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, like this morning, I was reading uh, one of uh, Alan Watts's older books yeah. um, called Behold the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And in that, he makes a really interesting point that actually it got me excited again. And it's not it's not that I hadn't heard it before, but the way he phrased it, like did something to me. But he talked about like, OK, yeah, great. We can say or we can affirm God exists. Jesus rose from the dead. He was born of a virgin. Fine. But what does it mean? Like, so what? Great. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Who cares? What does that mean? And so like the what does it mean and what are the implications, I think, is way more interesting than just here's the here's the thing. Right. Well, Uh, it's interesting. One of the things that I think we can do with that is use it to kind of flip on its head the rather annoying and frustratingly capitalist question that all of our students get, which is, so what are you going to do with that? (laughs) Right? So like the major in philosophy, it usually leads to weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, when they go tell their parents who threatened to stop paying for college and stuff. And then they say, okay, well, fine. Can I major in philosophy if I also do something practical, like political science or chemistry or whatever? And I've used to bristle and say, oh, what a stupid question. It misses the importance of subjectivity and becoming and all this kind of stuff. And I still think that's true. But now what I do is just bite the bullet. And I say, no, that's exact. But it's the right question, again, in this Kierkegaardian sense of, look, what are you going to do with it? (laughs) Right? In other words, who are you becoming? And how are you then spending your energies doing what you think matters? I think the fundamental question of philosophy, and, and it's a question that I wrestle with daily, and I ask my students daily, is simply, what will you do with your finitude? And if we put it that way, suddenly the idea of being a Christian, for example, or being a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist, for that matter, right? All of those different identities, which are all compelling in very interesting and complicated ways, force us to wrestle with the question, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> and, and then I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, I, I sound like the 44-year-old parent. I guess I really am. But I mean it in this very existential way. And so I encourage all my 18-year-old students, like, hey, flip this on your parents. When they say, what are you going to do with that? You respond by saying something like, live a life committed to truth, goodness, and beauty, and standing for justice for the marginalized. And, and then see what they say back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but how are you going to make money? And you're like, doing something that matters in ways that open up flourishing for all of God's creation. Like don't, don't see this to them, right? Actually own these questions and man, like the world becomes a pretty cool place. Once we start realizing that these really misguided questions get at all of the right things when we flip them on their head. Yeah, that, (laughs) That, that ties into and reminds me just a little bit about myself since uh, you shared about yourself. Um, I, so I, I was a pastor 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm still very young. So my, I have a buddy named Jace. And whenever I say I was a pastor, he always chuckles at me because Jace has been a pastor for longer than I've been alive. Yeah, Jace, <laughs> I said it. Come fight me. Um, but like, so I, I used to be a pastor. And one of the reasons I stopped being a pastor was this. Um, I, I basically came to the realization that I knew a lot about God, or at least I read all the books. Basically, I had all the, the facts. Um, and I could articulate them. I could give you, you know, whatever atonement theory you wanted. I could convince you I'm a Calvinist or that I'm an open theist or that I'm a process guy, whatever you want to be convinced of, I could do it. Um, but this, like, I knew about God, but I didn't know, I didn't have experiential knowledge of God. And so that, that distinction, like messed with me. And then I was like, I'm up on stage trying to tell people about something that I myself don't even have. Like, I can't do that. It created this massive crisis. And eventually I stopped being a pastor. Um, and now I brew beer uh, for a living. Um, <laughs> this means that you're a medieval pastor. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're I'm the like pastor in the wrong uh, century. <laughs> yeah. I'm following, following the road of the monks, except I have a wife, so I can't really just ditch her. You know, that wouldn't be fair. Um, yeah. But then also I, when you were speaking, I, I thought of um, this. I don't remember who said it, but I ever when I first heard it or read it, it stuck with me. And it's this idea that we are who we are becoming. Yeah. And I yeah. love that language of becoming. Like, in fact, that's how the intro to this podcast starts. It says we're all on a journey of becoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure we'll yeah. get more of that later too because that's very much uh some kierkegaard kind of yeah no this is absolutely kierkegaard i mean the the most basic difference between kierkegaard and hegel uh which again are, are not necessarily thinkers that your audience has to know deeply but i think they should know this distinction which is hegel understands the world in uh, terms of a both and sort of model, right? Everything has to do with being, and it's a matter of everything somehow coming together and leading to this um, vision from the mountaintop, whereby we can look back and survey all that is and then give accounts of what is true. Kierkegaard is an either or sort of thinker. He realizes that life requires decision that it doesn't all somehow come together in the end, that risk is unavoidable because we are finite and we have limits. And these limits are embodied, they're epistemic, they're they're relational. So instead of uh, Kierkegaard's philosophy being, you know, this being theory from the mountaintop, it's always a becoming theory on the road while hiking, right? And in fact, uh, I'm doing this six-week online course with Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity that I'd love to have your listeners check out. Um, it, it's free. The donations are accepted. They can go to iheartkierkegaard.com and uh, get signed up. But the title of that six-week course is simply, you know, getting lost and finding faith, walking with Kierkegaard. Because the whole idea is that Kierkegaard is a philosopher of becoming, of movement, of continually getting lost in the mountains in order to find more interesting waterfalls along the way. And uh, yeah, I, I have told my son since the day he was born, you are who you are becoming. And what's so cool about that idea is, and this is a Nietzschean thought, it might terrify us. 
right? We may not like ourselves too much. <laughs> that, that, that would suck. So it's like, well, shoot, I don't like myself. Then I'm going to become someone I hate. So the whole thought of becoming is it propels us back onto ourself. Anne Lamott has this great line where she says, you have to be where your feet are. And that's exactly right. So you can only become by being right now the person who is not staying there, right? It's about being radically unstayed. I was uh, hiking, did some backpacking this weekend, did a 20-mile backpacking trip with a buddy of mine, and <laughs> he, he's significantly shorter than me. And so we were walking down the trail, and anybody who does a lot of backpacking knows that you know, you've got 30, 35 pounds on your back you have to sort of walk a little differently, right? So you're more bent over. You've got to kind of keep your head down a little bit because a trip leads to real disaster um, if you've got that much weight on you. So I'm walking behind my buddy and he's just moving along. And I mean, out of the blue, I smack my head right into this branch that's running right across the trail. He had gone right under it, right? Hit my head right on it. My neck snaps back. I hear a pop in the back of my neck. I just go down on the ground. And while I was there on the ground, it occurred to me, it was like, you know, this is interesting. What it looks like to become requires that we always take risks of sliding off the trail, of getting knocked out while on it. And one of the important things that we can learn from Kierkegaard is no matter how long you've been walking, you're still moving, you're still walking. And Unlike Hegel, that I thought is, you know, like, shoot, we've been to the top. We already now know everything. It's all figured out. Theodicies are the philosophy name for this, right? Where everything bad has been justified. This is the everything happens for a reason and God is sovereign. So it's all going to work out the way God intends. Well, I'm an open theist. So I'm, I'm not quite so sure I buy that. My, my view is with Kierkegaard in this sense, I believe, you know, I, I think God walks with us. And I think God walks with us um, doesn't mean, you know, the kind of footprints in the sand message. Well, that's where I was carried and had no risk because God had. It's like, well, no, I think God's walking with me. But, you know, like the copperhead that I stepped two inches from this weekend, thank God didn't bite me. The, the branch I walked into, thankfully, didn't knock me out or cause a concussion, right? And the problem is lots of people, though, aren't that lucky. They do get bit. They do fall off the side, right? We, we heard a rescue copter while we were out there, actually, you know, and who knows what had gone wrong that somebody in far in the middle of nowhere, this helicopter got somebody. And so I don't think that God walking with us means, therefore, we have nothing to fear. What it means is that in the midst of fear, in the face of despair, we also realize that faith remains, that hope continues. And man, like I've been clinging to that a bunch this last year and a half while at home and scared from the pandemic and isolated and lonely. I don't think God's abandoned us, but I do think we're having to face the reality of vulnerability. And that vulnerability is not something that we somehow live out of. It's what we always live into. And so that's what I think we are who we're becoming means. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It reminds me of um, it's like a realization that I had. And then you actually on the episode with Dan, you articulated it like so perfectly. And I was like, oh, great. So like, I'm not crazy. Um, 
but I like the, the idea, once I caught on to this idea of becoming, um, I realized I was like, okay, so this is great. That means that Josh Patterson, who is currently 27 years old, I don't need to have all the answers and have all this figured out. Um, and actually I won't have it figured out tomorrow either. And probably not even, you know, the next day or the next week or the next month, the next year or whatever. Uh, but rather it's going to be this continued ongoing journey. Um, where whenever I think I have it figured out, something happens where, well, there goes that. And it's like, okay, that's right. Now I have it. Well, and okay, just kidding. <laughs> this is where your your statement earlier about maybe faith is the wrong term. Belief is what we're rethinking in the name of faith. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's exactly right. And what you've just described, this idea that hey, at twenty seven, I don't have to have it all figured out, and at forty four, I don't have to have it all figured out, and at sixty five or seventy nine, I don't have to have it all figured out. Um, what that means to me is simply that we are finally starting to understand what faithfulness looks like. So I make a distinction in a lot of my work and actually gave a TEDx talk on this called the failure of success. And the idea was simply, look, what if we stopped letting success or being goals be the things by which we define our life, right? It's, it's look at these achievements. I can list them out in front of you. What if instead we let faithfulness define our dignity? And in doing this, it, it it's it's like you know my my son is twelve, and I I am hoping to be faithful to the task of being a good father, but I'm not going to pull that off on like next Tuesday at four, right? There's no you know George Costanza moment where it's like thank you and good night and just like walking off stage because I've been a good father now I'm done. You know, it, the old joke, right? The guy gets married and 50 years later at the 50th wedding anniversary, the wife says, why haven't you told me you love me in 50 years? And he said, well, when we got married, I told you I'd love you and I'll let you know if anything changed. You know, the, the, like that's, that's not what faithfulness looks like. But if we really take faithfulness to heart, it's what I call risk with direction. We're continuing to risk, but we've got we've got some some headwinds now, right? Like we have a, a direction that we're going, and it's worth the risk. And it's it's something that always resonates with me when I look at Martin Luther King Jr., who, you know, toward the end of his life, he says, "Look, everything's good with me. I'm okay." And he didn't mean okay in the sense of everything was peachy and how wonderful and everybody loved him. Again, you know. He, he was facing death threats daily, but he meant everything's okay in this deep existential faith sense. And he says, when I die, don't mention all these things I've done, all the success, all the achievements, the Nobel Prize, the this award, the that award, the PhD. He's like, I want you to simply remind people that I was a drum major for justice. In other words, I kept walking and I kept trying to lead people in the direction worth the risk. So that's how I define faith. And, and I cash it out in my life in an explicitly Christian way, but lots of people don't. And I actually think that's entirely cool too. And one of the problems uh, I think that we face in our world is that we tend to think you are either faithful or faithless relative to a determinate religious tradition. And my view would be more of, no, you are faithful or faithless 
often within a religious tradition. So, so I want to say again, man, that church that I am real critical of right now is, I think, being faithless internal to their religion. And that sucks. Kierkegaard was right when he said real faith, real truth, real trust happens when we are fully invested in the idea that God is trouble, right? God is trouble for our complacency, trouble for our sufficiency, trouble for our narratives of our own greatness. But man, God's invested when it comes to my personal walk with others toward something that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, um, the idea of the, like being critical of the church is something that resonates with me deeply. Um, because I, I tried to do that mm-hmm. from within the walls when I was a pastor. Yeah. And I, and it was very tiring. Um, and emotionally exhausting, spiritually exhausting. Um, and it got to the point where it's like, dude, trying to put a fire out from inside of a burning building is very difficult if you don't want to get set on fire. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. the you said this idea earlier, or you, you said this phrase earlier that I was like, holy crap, I wrote it down. Um, you said something along the lines of um, being against the church in order to yeah. be the church. That's right. And I was like, wow. That so that phrase articulated something I've been trying to I didn't have words for um, me and again this this buddy Jace I'll bring him back up and he loves hearing his name on the, the, the old man I hear right yeah, the, the old I'm, guy That's right, right right and I'm patting his ego he loves it uh, but Jace and I so Jace honestly Jace is a, a super good friend of mine I consider him a mentor um, wicked wicked smart dude uh, PhD Old Testament hermeneutics if I have Bible questions wow. Jace is the one I go to um, but we've recently been having these discussions about church stuff because when I stopped being a pastor which was March of this year mm. um, I have not attended a church service since then mm-hmm. and one of Jace's things is he's like well dude I think like being a part of a church community is really important Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I agree. I think community is important. Um, but part of my issue is like, I don't feel like by being outside of a gathering on Sunday mornings that I am not a part of quote the church. I think yeah. the body of Christ is larger than just this thing that happens on Sunday mornings. So my challenge, whenever I, I push back against him is exactly that it's like, well, dude, it's not that I hate to use super Christian language, hate the bride of Christ, the church. Mm -hmm. I'm a part of it. I'm a part of the body of Christ. Just right now, this um, expression or this incarnation of the body of Christ is one that I'm not down with. And so I think my job then is to be like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to critique that. Not, you know, in, um, in spite of my faith, but because of it. Yeah. And yeah. so that was, I was like, dude, dead on. No, I think that's right. <laughs> my, I mean, I, I, my wife and I, um, and, and our son, we, we do still, um, actively participate in our local church. Uh, we're at an assemblies of God church currently, though I was raised in the church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. I'm Pentecostal. Um, but we've not attended in person since March of 2020. And that has been an interesting time, right? Because 
our church has been in person since June of 2020. So it's not like that we didn't have the option. It's just that we made what I believe was a moral decision that we made on purpose. Uh, we're, we live in South Carolina. Like, you know, cases still are not great here. <laughs> you know, the vaccination rate's still pretty bad here. And so it was like, well, how can I testify to the truth? What does it mean to be a witness to, to the, the God that I claim to worship? Well, it has to look like loving the widow, the orphan, the stranger. It has to look like sacrificing for the most vulnerable. It has to look like being invested in overturning systems of power that refuse to recognize the dignity of the historically marginalized. So in a context where a pandemic is ravaging all of humanity, I mean, all of us were, were we, we were and are struggling because of it. Somehow what I kept seeing, and I don't want to say the church in uh, a, a flippant way, because white evangelicals in the South in America are certainly not the church global, right? So let's be very clear about this. But it is when I talk about church, that's what I'm talking about, right? I, I wasn't raised, you know, a liberal Episcopal. I, I attended a Methodist church for a few years, and it was wonderful and welcoming and progressive and fantastic. But man, like they needed better drums, you know, I'm a professional drummer. It's like, I, it, I'm a Pentecostal. It just, it wasn't my affect, right? It didn't, it wasn't the speed that which I like services. <clears throat> and so what have I done in the last two years? I've been very vocal. I've tried to raise my voice as much as I can in the name of a canonic God. And most of it's been critical of this church expression that has been the one in which I still find myself. And you're right. The word is exhausting, <laughs> right? Um, but the other thing that I've found, and this I offer as a word of encouragement to you and anybody that's listening, <laughs> you don't have to always fight the battle. Sometimes you can receive inspiration and encouragement for, from those who seem to be fighting it well. And for me, what that has looked like is I, I go for really long runs on Sundays. And I, I mean, really long, I should make clear. Again, your, your listeners will think like, oh, he's a marathon. No, I'm talking like six miles, <laughs> right? Like way longer than I should be running unless I'm carrying a football, right? But I go for long runs and I listen to Nadia Bowles-Weber. I go for long runs and I listen to William Barber. I go for long runs and listen to interviews with Maya Angelou. I mean, wow, talk about, you know, chicken soup for the soul, as it were. It, because what I find in their words and their witness and their lives is the God that I'm trying to figure out how to become more like every day. And, you know, I listen to William Barber and then I listen to my home church. I usually listen back to back. And I love my church. But I love my church in a way that has a different kind of critical awareness, a, a hermeneutic uh, attentiveness. Once I've heard Barber just get done talking about the idea of justice rolling down like waters, I'm like, man, we, we got to step this up, right? And I'm not unaware of the racial dynamics that attend this kind of complacency. I, I'm not unaware of the patriarchal histories by which the 
need to make normal look present when it isn't yet, that's something that reflects a very deeply privileged perspective on living, right? And you keep hearing a lot of people say stuff like, you know, well, it wasn't until the pandemic that we all felt like that we were vulnerable. Like, well, shoot, that, that just proves that, you know, you aren't a person of color, right? Because part of, you know, it just means that you, you aren't a woman. Because part of what it means to identify in a body that has been historically perceived as problem is to realize that vulnerability names the human condition. Somehow, privilege has allowed some people, because of their bodies, not to have to attend to vulnerability. And I think that the white evangelical church in the South, in America, with exceptions, tends not to like talking about vulnerability, and yet they talk about worshiping a God who, in fact, is broken for us. This is where I teach James Cone and the cross and the lynching tree, where he says, look, you ain't talking about Jesus if you're not talking about lynched bodies. So that's been my encouragement, right? Like, how have I drawn strength this year? It's realizing that my voice doesn't have to be the voice. I'm trying to raise it as much as I can, right? But I'm also trying to learn to listen a little bit better and and listen to voices of people who seem to just be able to fight this in different ways. And I think maybe they do it better than I do, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good encouragement. I like it. I like it a lot. It actually, it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Dan Cook and Matt Carter Actually, rather recently, it was an episode like a few back listeners. I don't know when this one is in the line of things, but it's around there. It's the it's still Christian question mark episode. Mm. Uh, we talked about something similar to that, um, but not to like totally jolt us and shift us from there. But we have been throwing around a name a lot in this conversation that some people might be like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so apparently I'm told that you are the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society, which is pretty cool. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It, it, uh, I am the president and I am honored in ways that I can hardly make sense of. It's one of the things where like, you know, I, I remember going to the first Kierkegaard Society meeting when I was a grad student, um, my, my first meeting as a grad student. And I mean, I was surrounded by like all the names, right? So it, it'd be, you know, for you walking in and having Gretzky on one side and, you know, all the other hockey players, I don't know. <clears throat> We've exhausted all of them that I know. And I, I walked in and you know, it's like, wow, there's Jamie Ferreira. Oh my goodness. That's Michael Strasser. Oh shoot. There's John Caputo. Wow. Like, is, is that, you know, so suddenly it was, you know, there's Steve Evans, there's Gordon Reno. And it was all these people who I had grown up reading and was just like, amazed I was in the room with them and I didn't feel like I should be you know it's like I was sitting in the very back like please don't kick me out y'all and then fast forward like 15 20 years and it's like somehow they elected me the president of that organization oh my goodness right um but uh my wife who who is not an academic uh, which means that she's way smarter than me uh she she reminds me often Look, dude, no one cares that you're the president of the Kierkegaard Society. <laughs> like, don't, that, that's not a thing to like 
you know, make friends with, right? Uh, but I am the president and Kierkegaard is, you're right, a name that a lot of people may not know. Um, and as I've referenced these different thinkers uh, today, I, I hope your audience realizes philosophy can get pretentious and self-serving if the goal is to basically say, hey, be smart like me by name dropping. The reason that academics drop names is because what they're trying to do is make sure that they don't sound like they're the people inventing the wheel, right? We, we mention other thinkers because we stand on their shoulders and we live in their shadows and we try to figure out what it means to walk in light of what they've provided. And Kierkegaard's one of those people for me. So you, you said you did the podcast, you know, but still a Christian or, or are we still a Christian? It, it's, it's interesting. I would say that Kierkegaard is the philosopher who made it possible for me to still be a Christian. And um, Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, born 1813, died 1855. He died younger than me. He was 42 when he died and lived a fairly miserable life, to be honest with you. His, his dad was very religiously extreme. Uh, we would now call it like a fundamentalist. Um, and he was engaged to this uh, woman who, from all reports, was really remarkable but Kierkegaard, you know, sword and broke off the engagement with her because he felt like that he couldn't fully serve God if he was distracted by marriage. So instead, he lived, you know, as a bachelor his whole life, but madly in love with this woman that he had jilted, um, <laughs> suffered from clearly obsessive tendencies. I mean, the guy wrote more in a year than most of us will ever write in two or three lifetimes. And he, he also had this way of writing that was really strange. He wrote under pseudonyms for much of his authorship. And the reason he did this was because he was trying to get inside what it means to approach living in different ways. And so the idea was, look, I can't think about living as somebody who's motivated by immediate aesthetic pleasure. If I'm talking about this as the Christian that I am talking about a they who do this. So he would become that person and he would become Johannes the seducer and then write from that perspective. And then he would say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, what about the great moral voice of, of the person who is socially identified with power? So he becomes Judge William and then responding to Johannes the seducer. But then he thinks, well, but how do we make sense of Christianity? Well, not only as Christian, Anticlimacus, another name he takes on, but how do we make sense of Christianity as a philosophical task from somebody who's not Christian, Johannes Climacus, right? So he's got all these names that he takes on, but it's not trying to just be sexy or frustrating. He's doing this because he realizes life is always something lived forward but understood backward, he says. And so what it looks like to live life forwards is to always be invested in the living of life. And so when we sit back in our philosophical repose and write treatises about how someone lives, he just calls the bluff. And he's like, that's not how this works. The only way you can write is by being invested in living what you're trying to write about. That's why he couldn't get married. That's why he spent his life criticizing the church because he, he really took seriously. He had to be the thing he was trying to become. And 
he ends his life engaging in what's called the attack on Christendom because he says that his whole authorship was just trying to think through what does it mean to become a Christian? And when asked, are you a Christian? His answer is no, but I'm trying to become one. And I mean, man, what a great answer, right? Because it, again, it eschews that Hegelian idea that we are a thing. And he was like, but think about it. So you got faith at your baptism or at, in the you know, altar at some youth camp on a Tuesday night when 13 years old or whatever. But then what'd you do the next day? Well, I've already got faith. Now I got to do something else, right? And he's like, who goes farther than faith? Faith is as far as we get because we're always trying to get deeper into faith. So we don't be Christians. We become Christians. And he took seriously the idea that the Christian power structure, which he called the establishment or the church triumphant, he said that didn't reflect a broken-bodied God who invites us into personal relationship in light of sustained risk. And instead, he encourages uh, what he calls the church militant, which is scary for us, right? Because we tend to think church militants like, you know, grab your guns and wave the American flag and faith over fear nonsense, right? But what he's saying is, no. The church militant is a church that is continuing to contend for the faith, not against the secular powers that are ruining our society. And so, hey, let's go get some, you know, stacked conservative judges that will then, you know, make faith win. He's like, no, 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 no. That misses what the militancy means. The militancy is realizing that God of Christianity is one who says, come all who are heavy burdened, that there's no limit on who gets access. There is no build the wall, build the wall, regardless if Mexico pays for it. There's no wall. <laughs> there's, there's just invitation. There's just hospitality. But that hospitality is an invitation, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it, to a very costly grace. So it's a grace that expects that we be transformed and then continue to be ever more transformed. So this is why Trip Fuller and I are doing this class, iheartkierkegaard.com. We're doing this because we think Kierkegaard speaks to where we are in such a profound way right now that you don't have to read Danish you don't have to attend the Society of Christian, or excuse me, the Society of uh, Kierkegaardian Studies to think about these issues. Though that's cool, right? Come if you want to join the Soren Kierkegaard Society, we'd love to have you. But the point is not to like, how do we go be academics and write treatises on Kierkegaardian ontology? The point is, how do we live more effectively? How do we love more deeply? And how do we find ways to be willingly wrecked by a God who thinks powerlessness is the most powerful thing that can be manifest in the world. So yeah, I, I hope some people hop in and do the class with us because you don't have to be an expert to get why this sort of scratches us where we're all itching right now. Yeah. The, and part of, for me, like one of the things that would allure me to participate in such a class is the idea of transformation, yeah. uh, which is a word you just used. Cause that was the thing that I was always looking for. 
um, when I was a pastor, um, was like this idea that like, oh, if you believe the right ideas, then transformation happens. But what I found, um, and maybe this is an overgeneralization, but I think it's mostly true is that ideas don't really change people. Um, you can believe all the right ideas and that's great, but you can still be a piece of shit. <laughs> you can still suck as a human being, even if you have like, say somehow you have access to ultimate truth. You could have all of it, yeah. but if it doesn't change you as a human being yeah. and the way you are in the world, then does it matter? And for me, I was like, I, I get up, you know, on stage on Sundays and I preach these messages and it, it doesn't do anything to me. It doesn't do anything to the people listening. So like, why am I doing this? So we can feel good about ourselves and say, we have the right ideas, pat myself on yep. the back and move on. Like, yep. no, that can't, that can't be the thing. Uh, yep. So tra transformation um, is probably the word that I've been chasing. Like that's yeah. probably the word that guides my journey of becoming is transformation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is, is something that resonates probably with all sorts of people in all sorts of walks of life and all sorts of careers and all sorts of age groups, because, you know, I, I give talks to the corporate world, for example, did a lot more pre COVID, <laughs> but uh, you know, I give talks about things like how do you build cultures of trust and how can we mine philosophy to think differently about, uh, you know, the way we do business, right? <clears throat> and it's interesting when I give these talks, the thing I hear more than anything else are the really, really successful people, you know, the C-suite executives who will then reach out and say, I really appreciate your talk. You know, could we follow up? And what they then say is, it just feels so empty, right? I've done everything. I got everything I ever wanted. I, I, I set out, I accomplished it, I did it. But man, like, what's the point? What's the purpose? And I think one of the problems with that is, well, their, their perspective was transformation is something that we can promote ourselves out of needing, <laughs> right? If you just become partner at the law firm, you don't need to be transformed anymore. If you can just exit the entrepreneurial venture, make it go public, leave a billionaire, you don't have to be transformed anymore. But this misunderstands the human condition. The human condition is a condition that we were never supposed to get out of. <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating. People ask me, well, you know, why are you a Christian as opposed to some other religious tradition? And my answer is always, well, mainly for contingent reasons. This is the way I was raised. This is where I found myself. If I had been raised in other countries, I'd probably hold different views on God and religion. And this is ultimately what's led me to a hopeful universalism is because I started just realizing I, I couldn't make sense of exclusivism in light of those contingencies. But the other thing that is why I am a Christian or I'm trying to become one, right? As Kierkegaard says, is Christianity's interestingly distinctive. I won't say unique, but it's interestingly distinctive in the fact that it's not really a story about how to get out of the pit of the human condition by joining God somewhere else. It's a story about how God says, 
the pit was not a thing that you were supposed to get out of. I came down with you in it and then kept saying, it's good. It's good. You fools, where are you trying to go? <laughs> like, I'm right here. The kingdom of God is here. It's nigh. It's present, right? So for some weird reason, we think transformance and being transformed is about human success that allows us not to need any other work done. But life is not, you know, like adding a bathhouse on the back or, or a pool house on the back of your mansion. You know, it's something you get done and three months later it's finished and you get to enjoy it and say, look how fancy. And you put pictures on Facebook and everybody's jealous. Life is human conditions more like cleaning Notre Dame Cathedral. It takes so long to clean it that the scaffolding never comes down. It just keeps rotating around. And by the time they get done, quote unquote, they're right back where they started, but it now needs cleaned again. That's the kind of transformation I think that life really requires of us. And this is why the becoming as opposed to being is so important as a narrative. But this gets at, maybe this is a good place to start talking about faith versus belief, right? Because um, <laughs> the apologetics industry, again, popular apologetics industry, and the popular preachers who you know we can find on YouTube and they've got big followings, the whole idea is how can you get the pool house out back? How can you then brag about this accomplishment and this achievement that you've got. You've got salvation. You've got eternal life. Ha ha, suck it, right? Like the whole idea is somehow to be better than other people because you got Jesus. That's why I hate the I heart my church t-shirts. It's like, you shouldn't I heart the church. What I should wear is a I heart you, whoever you are no matter how much we disagree. I heart you, the person who I actively think is threatening my security and safety. I heart you because that's where Jesus calls me to stand. And faith, unlike belief, is not something that's fixed. Belief, uh, and again, we could get super technical. I'm not going to, I just, my, my backpacking trip was actually with a buddy of mine from grad school whose specialty is uh, lived epistemology. So he thinks about things like degrees of epistemic warrant relative to belief as an idea, right? And so I'm like, oh, so you believe that X? And he's like, no one believes that X. We have various degrees of belief that X, <laughs> right? So we can go into the weeds here, but no one wants to hear that what all of that leads to is the idea that belief far too often is something that we hold in ways that then shut down continued conversation and hospitality to challenge. I believe that P, you believe that not P, which means you're either irrational or immoral, and I should not listen to you. Faith as risk with direction means, wow, if my direction is loving my neighbor as myself, if my direction is loving the widow, the orphan, the stranger, if my direction is justice in the name of a canonic God, man, th that means I've got to risk my belief in the encounter with the other.
And man, we don't like that. And this is why I've been asked to leave a bunch of churches is because they tell me that I'm dangerous to their congregation. And I always, it breaks my heart. And I always take a step back and realize they're exactly right. I don't mean to be dangerous. All I'm trying to do is just be the voice I think God put me on the earth to be and, and do what I try to do and do it faithfully in that space. And it turns out if I were a CEO or a financial planner or a soccer coach, they'd put me on the council. But because I'm a philosopher, they handle me and guard against me and worry about me because question marks challenge belief. And their faith is faithlessness masquerading as certainty. Faith requires that we be confident as grounded in the humility modeled by kenosis, by a God who says, I'm with you fellers. <laughs> and man, that, that as, as we say in my Pentecostal church, like that'll preach. The problem is it won't preach in our churches because the churches don't want to hear that. They want to hear about how God is on their side rather than that God calls us to be on the side of the other. And that's scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Absolutely, it's scary stuff. And I think, man, it. It just like it because when I when I think about my faith, because uh, so a question, honestly, that I've been wrestling with recently, more recently, the, the biggest question for me has been, can I in any meaningful way call myself a Christian? Mm. Um, and when I appeal to belief, then I say, well, there's people who are the gatekeepers, which I don't want to, you know tear down all gatekeepers because right. it makes sense um there's a lot of people who are the gatekeepers that would say no according to your belief you're not yeah but when i interrogate my faith it's like well wait a minute i feel like the answer is very much yes yeah. although it doesn't fit your system of belief right and that's always been the that's always, 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 that has been the tension for me um, for like as long as I can remember. Um, yeah. Maybe we can switch the question for you. Yeah. Because when we ask the question, can I call myself a Christian? We necessarily are now introducing a range of interpretive options about, well, what counts as a Christian, right? So, well, yeah, I count myself a Christian if I'm talking about what Bonhoeffer meant or what Kierkegaard meant or what Simone Weil meant or Martin Luther King, right? <laughs> but hmm, can I call myself a Christian if what I mean is Jimmy Swaggart or Jerry Falwell or Franklin Graham? Hmm. Right. So notice the way that we frame that question is we're basically asking a question of allegiance relative to a particular historical and political body. Right. And I think there's a different version of that question 
that helps us avoid some of that interpretive difficulty. Not entirely, but maybe in a helpful way. And here's, here's the different question I would ask. Do you still hope that God looks like Jesus? Do you still hope that reality is grounded in other-oriented love? And if your answer is yes to those two questions, then I don't think it matters what you call yourself, but I'm going to call you a Christian, right? And that's where I've kind of come down is I, I no longer, at least when I'm being reflective about it, I don't speak about knowing that Christianity is true. I talk about hoping that it is. And when they say, well, what do you mean by Christianity? Again, then we're right back into, well, is it this person's or that? And I was like, you know what? Here's what I mean by Christianity. Do I hope that God looks like Jesus? Now, notice, importantly, does that mean that God only looks like Jesus or that Jesus only presents as God if we are now internal to the language game that we now call Christianity? That's where my hopeful universalism shows up. And I say, no, God seems way more interesting than that, <laughs> right? So I, I don't know how any of it works, but I hope that it works such that the meek inherit the earth and that neighbor love ultimately is the greatest command and that hospitality is probably the core of Christian ethics and that gratitude should be absolutely devastating to privilege, then yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to become a Christian because I hope that's true. Yeah, I, li I like that language. I, I hope that it's true. Um, I mean, that's how when people ask me about like, so like when you die, do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? Like, I, I don't even know what that question means, but yeah. I, I hope so. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope so too. My, my grandma once said to me, she was a, a minister herself. Um, so I, I grew up in a rather strange maybe version of Pentecostalism such that, you know, I was raised by very strong feminist women who also, uh, you know, stood their ground in the church. Right. Um, my grandma and my grandpa were, were pastors and I mean, we're, we're ministers. And my grandma once, um, toward the end of her life, I, I called her and, you know, her name was Mom Mom to me. It was actually Margie, but I was like, Mom Mom, how are you doing today? She goes, honey, I'm just too tired to go to heaven. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like, like, Mom Mom, I'm the philosopher here, right? You're not supposed to be that deep. And she was like, I'm just too tired. Eternal life sounds terrifying today. And I kind of think maybe she was on to something. So do I hope we go to heaven? Heck yes. I'd like to hang out with my mom. mom. I'd love to see pop again. Right. I mean, of course, I hope we do in some sort of sense, continue to have personal relationships grounded in love for eternity. But then I keep going back to the idea that. Look, you, you haven't seen God unless you cared for the person on the street who was the face of God. Where is the kingdom of heaven? It's right here. So I don't think that means there is nothing after 
this life, that this is all there is. I love C.S. Lewis's description of this as, you know, death is the end of the prologue. And now we open chapter one. Like I, I, I'm in, I, I love that storied narrative. But, you know, would it change anything? And, and my answer increasingly is no. It, if I died and it turns out I was wrong about eternal life in heaven, I still think I will live more effectively outpoured to others if I, I am invested in a story that says the kingdom of heaven is now. And it also might be in heaven too, <laughs> right? Like, but the latter half, in some ways, less important. You know, now on some days when we're exhausted and, you know, swing low, sweet chariot, like, I mean, I get that too, right? I think there's also an eschatological hope that I talk about a lot in my work that is really powerful. But eschatological hope is not, again, a hope to get out of the human condition. It's the hope that the human condition is not something to get out of. It's, it's what William Barber talks about when he says on Easter that Resurrection Sunday, as he puts it, is simply the idea that death is not the last chapter. But then he goes on to say, not, so, hey, we're all going to be reunited in the sky, right? Which I think he also believes, which I do too. But what he goes on to say is, this is why we can now show charity after justice, as Emmanuel Levinas puts it. This is now how we can show that healthcare can be granted to everyone, that we can actually provide child leave and unemployment insurance and real living wages because death is not the end of the story. Life is. So what does it mean to sing the song of life? It doesn't just mean that we preach sermons and we write books about heaven, right? You know, that uh, what was it the six people you meet in heaven or 30 seconds in heaven. There's all these books about like getting to heaven. I mean, my goodness, why not simply write the book that says the four people I ignored yesterday who I could have helped. Like that's the Christian message. That's heaven is the fact that you get to be Jesus to somebody. And so I don't know. Maybe the more I get deep into philosophy, the more books I write, the more technical I get in my actual work. I'm just not sure you got to be all that technical. Maybe the point is, you know, it's like I ask my son every day before he goes to school. I say, Atticus, uh, and yes, we have a dog named Boo to keep in the Kill, Kill a Mockingbird theme rocking, right? Atticus and Boo. <clears throat> so I'm like, Atticus, who loves you? And he's like, mommy and you. And I'm like, that's right. What is it that we care nothing about? He's like, that I am rich. I was like, what do we care about? And he says, that I am kind. I think in doing that, I'm teaching him Christianity every single day. Now, in our home, it also carries the name of Jesus. But I don't think I've got to talk to him a lot about heaven. I've got to show him how to live heavenly by being kind to those who don't deserve it, because it turns out none of us do. Yeah, it. I love that. It, it just it reminds me that like all. At least in my opinion, I feel like all we can really know 
um, is that we are here right now and right now matters <laughs> right now. I would, I would, I mean, I'd go as far as to say is, is, is now the present is the only thing that's eternal. Um, all of our, our memories, our past experiences, the only way we access them is here and now. Um, and heaven or where we go and we die is something that we just simply don't have access to. Yeah. But if we remember that we are here, right here and right now, then we can live in such a way, as you said, that is heavenly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is far more interesting. And I think, too, if I am correct, Kierkegaard was pretty on board with that kind of way of speaking because um, he talked about faith more as like a or truth as more of a lived experience rather than just abstract ideas yeah right? yeah yeah it is exactly right first i should say um you're right here right now like immediately i'm singing jesus jones and van halen and all, all the songs <laughs> right which i which i won't quote or try to sing for uh, copyright worries about your podcast but um yeah kierkegaard says faith is not about and this is crucial Faith is not weak belief. Faith is not, uh, it was at Mark Twain says, you know, faith is believing something you know taint true, right? Faith is not belief that if I just had enough evidence, I could turn into knowledge. Kierkegaard says that faith is the highest passion available to an existing individual. Well, what is passion other than the word that no one should ever use in any college entrance essay? Well, passion is <laughs> the idea of lived investment, right? Um, maybe this is actually a, a, this is an example I use sometimes in business talks, but I think it works here. <clears throat> Why is it we get all scared and nervous uh, when the stock market drops? Well, it turns out the only people who get scared and nervous are those who have money in the stock market, right? Which of course, again, is, is ironically a very, excuse me, a very small percentage of, you know, the population. But the reason you get nervous is because you got skin in the game. At least that game, right? Now, again, we can, I am perfectly sympathetic to say, well, this is already a privileged conversation and capitalism's already ignored. But yes, yes, yes. But use the metaphor, and I think it works. The reason that you get nervous when the market drops is because you realize you're losing something when that happens. Passion works the same way. Passion is making an investment such that you are affected by things. You realize that when people suffer, you're implicated in that suffering. Did you do everything you could to prevent it? Are you being a resource for them in the midst of it? Are you walking with them in the midst of life's trials? Or are you ignoring it from on top of your mountain, telling them God's got a plan? Passion means we've got skin in the game because we realize the game is about being in fleshed, being skin, being bones, being broken. And this is where I think you know the church, wow, we've just got so much that we need to get better at. I mean, my goodness. We, we don't know how to even think about things like disability. 
And, and yet we worship a God whose body is broken is the central metaphor for how we understand our identity. But yet we do this and couch this and express this in ableist language. We talk about a God of triumph on the cross and yet connect it somehow with a logic of white supremacy that doesn't realize that God's on the side of the lynched, not the mob. We, we somehow think that God is on the side of the powerful, and yet what we continue to see is God say, why are you fighting about who gets to sit on the right hand of God? Don't you realize that the least will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, the whole thing is such an inverted logic. It, it's, it's rupturing. And yet somehow what we do is walk around talking about faith, like, ah, I've got the right belief. <laughs> you're like, yeah, belief matters, right? I don't want to act like it does. I'm a philosopher. Of course, I think belief is important and our views, we should try to make sure that they correspond the best we can to the state of affairs that is mind independently obtaining. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that is still important. I want to know what you believe because it's the invitation to know who you are. But notice belief is the access point to relationship. It's not the goal of relationship. The goal of testifying to someone about who Jesus is is not to get them to hold my belief, <laughs> right? The, the goal is to invite them to realize flourishing is possible in the midst of their trauma. And then trying to say, hey, I'm going to walk with you because I think that's what it means for Jesus to walk with us. So again, th this sounds way more confessional than I get in my professional identity, right? But what's so cool about this is I don't think I'm saying anything other than what we find in the pages of Bonhoeffer when he says, I no longer use the word God around religious people because they don't mean by it what I mean by it. <laughs> and you can actually set all the theology aside, right? I mean, ironically, one of my good friends, I won't mention his name for, for uh, worry that he would uh, you know reject my characterization, but he's a very famous atheist philosopher of religion. And he are very good friends. He's a guy who I actually think models what it looks like to hope God looks like Jesus. But but he just thinks that Jesus is more compelling if there is no God. Hmm. Right? In other words, what if the task is we as humans can actually be like Jesus? We don't have to be like the corporate C-suite Mercedes driving like that. That that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But it tempts us to think that that's what God looks like. And his point is, what if God isn't the point? What if the point is who are you? And what I want to suggest is then we who do identify with the narrative of Christianity and that phrase and that identity. Maybe we need to think more about, are we passionately invested in looking like Jesus ourselves, rather than just making sure that our beliefs are some that then can exclude all of the non-Jesus people from our midst and our social power?
right? That seems really, really, really misguided to me. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, and um, <laughs> that, but that also seems like something I could give my life to is becoming more like Jesus, um, right? Because it has, see, to, yeah. But now, 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 being a pastor looks different, right? Because oh, for sure. What what I would then say, which I'm sure is not what you mean, and I get what you mean in a vocational sense. What I would say is this podcast is every bit the kind of preaching that the world needs because you're inviting people in this sense to rethink their belief so that they can be more invested in their faith. Isn't that what pastors are supposed to do in the first place? <laughs> right? I think so, but it didn't pan out in the organized thing on a Sunday morning that we called church. This is where I found, I mean, that's why I keep, I continue to do this is because I feel like there's something here that, that matters. That is just as much a part of the quote body of Christ as getting up on a stage on Sunday morning and preaching a message about, I don't know, Jeremiah chapter nine, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think this is true in a lot of ways though. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. So when the pandemic started, uh, I, I had to go virtual, which I, I supported. I, I'm glad my university let us do that. Um, so I didn't stop being a professor. I didn't stop teaching. But I started realizing all the aspects of the professory teachy thing that I loved were really hard, right? Because the stuff I love is not just going to class and giving a lecture. There's probably a lot of people better at that than me. What I loved was showing up in full face paint and a wig at the basketball game and losing my mind with the dude on the lacrosse team who's wearing a bodysuit that's fluorescent orange, right? Like that was doing life together. And it was students seeing me being invested in their passions and then them wanting to take my classes because now they saw that what I cared about was something that maybe they should listen to as well, right? And that was hard to do virtually. So I started a YouTube channel. And if anybody's interested, it's simply philosophy for where we find ourselves. And <laughs> it, it, it was this great thing because it was less done for other people and more done because I just wanted to spend every day trying to model what it looks like to take philosophy seriously as a way of living. And it was like, well, shoot, I can't be in front of my students all day long. I don't get to go to coffee with them. I don't get to you know, go for walks around the lake. We don't get to go hiking and stuff. So I'm going to stick up videos pretty regularly that are doing that work. And after a year and a half of doing this, not as regularly as I would like, but you know, 150 videos or something in a year and a half. I mean, it, what I've realized is people I would have never, ever, ever walked around the lake with are watching those videos and reaching out to me, basically thanking me for walking with them, <laughs> right? And, and it's like, man, that's what a professor is, right? Again, not in the sense of like, I am the greatest, but simply it was breaking the model of the normal in order to be invested in what it is that was really the meaning-making task in the first place. I think more pastors need to start saying, am I a voice in my city for change, for transformation? 
Or am I a voice in my city for um, reinforcing the status quo in the name of opposing systemic injustice because that challenges the very thing that I need to remain a period? So get rid of your question marks, right? So, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think we've, we've got a messed up society where entrepreneurs are simply people who have startups and angel investors rather than realizing that entrepreneurs are also, you know, people with a dream and a four track and a SoundCloud account. <laughs> like, and, and they're making things they think are beautiful. And when we think of innovation, we tend to think about Google, which is fine. But we also don't think as much about like womanist philosophy and theology that says, no, we're going to innovate by rethinking the Black woman experience as actually something essential to our narrative of the divine. Now, that's innovative in ways that are transformational. So, yeah, man, you, you don't have to be employed by the church, but I'm pretty stoked that you're uh, getting up and still preaching. Well, Aaron, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's in, it's encouraging, um, for sure. Especially too, because in, I, I don't know. I guess more recently, um, hope has been something that I've just been like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that idea gives me hope. It gives yeah. me something to, to get up for, you know, and to to continue doing so. I appreciate. I hope that. so. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe um, one more philosophical distinction, and then I'll leave it at that, right? There are a variety of hopes. And I wrote an essay recently called Of God and Trout Fishing, where I tried to well, both bring together my two loves, right? You know, I love God. I love trout fishing. Like, he's got to hook up somehow. Pardon the pun. Ba-boom. But how can I think about hope? Because I'll be honest, when the former president was elected, I struggled to have hope for our society and where we were going. And when I started seeing the white evangelical response of the last few years, I, I, how could I still have hope? Because the thing in which I hoped that the church would stay, like, man, they were the thing that was now violating my hope. And Everything we kept hoping for in the face of the pandemic, just more people kept dying. Where is God? Like, hope was hard and is hard. But in writing that essay, something occurred to me. <clears throat> there are at least three different types of hope. There is what I call um, existential hope, which is the hope for an object at a specific time. Right. I hope that I will my, my son today. He, he last night, his world was blown because he discovered that KFC had buckets of fried chicken. He didn't know this because the pandemic had like robbed us of that particular joy. And he was like, wow, buckets, dad, like real buckets. So today he had the hope, existential hope for getting a bucket of chicken. We went and got him a bucket of chicken. He had the bucket of chicken, his existential hope then actualized, right? But existential hope is 
you know, wanting the new car and getting the new car. It's looking for the job and getting the job. It's, it's expecting the child and it being born healthy. We all know those hopes and those are important hopes. But we tend to think that that's all the hope. That's just what hope is. And how can we have that? Because everything seems taken away from us right now. But we forget that there is existential hope, which is basically the idea that hope is a matter of continued movement forward, that it's that we still have directionality regardless of the existential hopes that fill our direction. And then even more so, we forget the eschatological hope, which is the idea that we have hope against hope, that we have hope in the impossible, not just in the idea of possibility, which is existential, not just in the KFC chicken being an actuality, which is existential possibility. We actually are defined, and this is something that I think is decidedly religious, not exclusively Christian, but I think this is part of what it means to be religious, is to be nested in this, this eschatological orientation. Kierkegaard puts it this way. I am suspended over 70,000 fathoms, and there I find faith. But what we want to say is, no, if I'm in the middle of the ocean, like that's where I lose it. <laughs> Right. But he said, no, no, no. And the way I like to narrate this, this is a buddy of mine said it this way. And it's always stuck with me. His name was Drew Philbeck. He said, basically what Kierkegaard means is the only way to avoid drowning is by swimming straight down. And because that's when we learn to breathe underwater. Right. That's ex that's this eschatological dimension. So what's this have to do with trout fishing? And what's it have to do with losing hope in the world? When I go fishing, I hope to catch fish. Like, let's make no bones about it. That is existential hope. But I also hope that if I don't catch fish, I will get to continue waking up in a world where fishing is possible. Existential hope. But the real hope, the, the thing that grounds the other two, and sustains me even when I'm catching nothing or when I'm at the office or it's raining and I can't get to the river is the eschatological hope that is the thing I really hope for is to be someone who is not defined by catching fish and not wrecked by not catching fish, but someone who has my identity in the idea of being a fisherman. Right. So what does it mean to have eschatological hope? It means that you hope you catch fish, you hope to get on the river, but ultimately your identity is defined by continually becoming the person who fishes. Right. So, yeah, man, hope is hard right now. But I think what's less hard is that idea that when we feel like the world has cracked underneath us or the ocean is just too deep, the goal is not necessarily to grab that random floating door that we can climb onto with Kate Winslet, right? The goal is to realize 
maybe we've already been built to breathe underwater, right? And, and we are, like Martin Luther King said, we're okay. When everything's not, we're still okay. And that hope is the hope that is sustaining me every single day while all of the other hopes continue to get dashed or delayed or infinitely deferred. So yeah, man, let's have hope together. Let's encourage each other in hope. And the audience, we need y'all's help. Encourage us in hope. But the hope is not that it will be okay when, but it's already okay. You're already okay, right? And, and that okayness is something that I think, um, yeah, we've lost sight of because we think everything is about getting the vaccine, which I fully support, getting the new president, which, man, I'm glad we got right? Getting the infrastructure package, which I wish were still 4 trillion or whatever. Like I have all those hopes, but I'm not defined nor wrecked by their achievement or defeat. We are okay in a different sense. And that sense is the one that allows people in France to hang out of their windows and sing together and hit pots and pans in the middle of the dark night of the soul. Yeah, man. And as uh, your Pentecostal friends would say, that'll preach. <laughs> Amen. We need an organ. Good. Bah, 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 yeah, bah, bah, exactly. Bah, 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 Altar bah, bah, call. Bah, bah. There it is. <laughs> this Dude, has been fun, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Aaron, absolutely. I'm. Thank you for agreeing to come and hang out today. I, I appreciate it. Trip, if you're listening, thank you for helping make this connection. Um, it was a ton of fun. And uh, I have copious notes of links and such that I'll put in the show notes. That's uh, so awesome. people can continue to connect with your work. Um, people can sign up for the, the Kierkegaard class, which I myself am also going to be a part of. I'm super Pretty excited awesome. about that. Um, so yeah, uh, Aaron, thank you so much. Listeners, as always, thank you for hanging out. And if this was even like, I feel like we scratched the surface of all that Kierkegaard <laughs> has to offer. And if this excites you, go join the freaking class. It is more it's than worth it. The link That's will right. be there. It'll be fun. And um, I don't know, does will trip use words that are uh, more inappropriate than freaking? <laughs> I, I know it depends on context for trip, but if you guys want to find out if he does, you have to join the class. trip is a hoot because every time he and I do podcasts together, I've been on his show several times. Uh, he, he always fusses at me anytime I mention like a technical word. He's like, okay. all right, stop it, bro. So what's that mean? Yeah. Right? And so, so I, now I'm like automatically, whenever I say one, I've got trips voice in the back of my head saying, stop it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, we're going to have a great time. I'd love to have uh, the audience come hang out with us. I heart Kierkegaard.com. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd love to have them, you know, come join me on YouTube philosophy for where we find ourselves. Um, and please, yeah, reach out to me if I can be a resource or encouragement to any of you. Um, I think we all genuinely need each other right now in ways that um, the the sense of losing hope, the sense of losing direction is so palpable. And uh, ultimately, you know, linking arms with each other is something that is inspiring at Black Lives Matter protests. And it's also something we need just within our daily lives. So let's link up with, with each other and uh, push each other forward in ways that matter. Heck yeah, you heard it here first, folks. 
<laughs> All right, Aaron. Peace to you, listeners. Thanks, As always, peace and love. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take care.